Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right, so we are joined here today by a great guest, Mr. Brian Taylor. Brian, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, Dave, uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, I am an audiologist. I have been for more than 30 years. My current role is Director of Clinical Content Development for Signia, which is one of the uh, hearing aid manufacturers inside of the WS Audiology Company. And uh, in addition to that, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin. I've taught a class there, just recently wrapped up a class. And uh, I'm also the editor of a, uh, the, the journal called Audiology Practices, which uh, is uh, part of the uh, ADA Academy of Doctors of Audiology group. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I should have corrected myself at the beginning. I should have said Dr. Brian Taylor, because you did mention that you're, you've are you been an audiologist for 30 years. Um, I've had a chance to know you for, it's okay. uh, for a few years now, and uh, I've always enjoyed our conversations because I think um, you know, you've know you written a bunch of books. Um, I think you're just very, very well-versed in this whole industry, so you're the perfect candidate of the type of people that I love to have on the podcast and have these conversations with. Um, so I think this is going to be a really good discussion because as we were talking about before we started recording here, um, this is kind of a continuation of a lot of these conversations that I've been having lately, going back to where, you know, I'm talking with Andy Bellavia and Kat Penno, and then I talked with uh, Steve Taddy and Abram Bailey, and then most recently I talked with uh, Kim Cavett and Jeff Cooling, and the sort of basis for these conversations has all revolved around this idea of like, man, there's a lot of uh, sort of momentum happening in this industry right now. Um, and, you know, you look at it from, if you just want to list out all the different moves, you know, Bose introduces a hearing aid, um, you know, Jabra, which is owned by GN, you know, they've released uh, for, for that consumer brand. Now they're going to have a hearing aid that's going to start by being sold in Costco. Um, you have what's happening in sort of the hearables world where the hearables hearing aid convergence with uh, Jacody and Qualcomm partnering and issuing this licensing of what's called OTC ready, which is basically going to be the ability for any OEM out there, any of the manufacturers manufacturers that are building uh, one of these like hearable devices with that QC5100 Qualcomm chip in it, they've now partnered with Jacody so that you can just basically turn on that functionality. Um, the list goes on and on. I could keep going, but ultimately what we're getting at is, you know, there's a lot of movement and a, and a lot of the movement pertains to what I think a lot of us in the hearing healthcare industry refer to as like the mild to moderate end of the market. And this obviously all coincides with the impending OTC legislation that at a certain point, probably in 2022, we'll see implemented, um, which will allow for hearing aids to be sold over the counter. And again, that whole thing was sort of uh, initiated by Obama in the PCAST uh, recommendation that he had, where he basically suggested that 
you know, we should have more affordable options that can be sold over the counter. Um, and so really, I think it's like we're in this period right now where it's getting really interesting. And I, you know, so when we sat down to kind of flesh out what an episode would look like together, um, you sent me a number of different papers that have resonated with you recently. Uh, and so I read through them. And, and you know, so I read a few of these. Um, the Seems to be the one person that really stands out for you is Larry Humes, um, the professor at uh, at IU. Um, and so he, you know, I was reading through it and, and what really kind of caught my attention in the way that I wanted to kick off this conversation was, you know, he basically concluded one of the papers where he said, you know, ultimately, and I'm reading this now in quotes, ultimately the goal is not to take opportunities away from any specific caring healthcare professional within the existing model or service provision. This model has served the needs of many individuals quite well and will continue to do so. The focus in the upcoming decade will be to expand the market and the alternatives available to adults with, quote, normal, slight, or mild hearing losses and the consequent perceived hearing difficulties. These individuals, many of whom are older adults, represent the 75 to 85 percent of those with hearing needs who have not been met by prevailing hearing healthcare system. So, before now I kick this over to you, I mean, that that's exactly what the, the title of the last podcast conversation that I had with Jim and Ke- uh, with uh, Jeff and Kim was, um, you know, kind of the hearing healthcare professionals role in an expanding market. So I firmly agree with him where, you know, what we're going to see over this next 10 years is going to largely be catered around this sort of what I consider to be a new side of the industry that's not really ever been tapped into before. As he says, you know, it's not as if like the existing model is what's um, being disrupted, if you will, or it's under attack. I think that that is sort of cemented in place and it's very helpful for those that uh, are accessing it through there, but it's not really designed for the people like he mentions who have you know, kind of quote, normal, slight or mild hearing losses, and they might have very specific difficulties. So I just wanted to kind of frame this conversation broadly here and kick it over to you to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, maybe how we've even got to this point and just your general view of where things are now starting to head in light of all this flurry of news and activity that's been happening uh, over the course of the last few months. Sure. I mean, you're uh kind of making my head spin, Dave, just to ma- mentioning all those uh, things that are happening in the market. And as I uh, seem like on a weekly basis uh, shared with my students, uh, I've been in the industry or the profession for 30 plus years. And I think that uh, people that are just entering the profession are probably going to see more changes in the next five years yeah. than people like me who have been around for more than three decades saw over that entire span. So yeah, I think things are changing rapidly. It's really important for people to pay attention. The other thing that you uh, that brings uh, that you bring to my mind is uh, uh, a quote or something that I've heard Dan Qual, who's a friend of mine who works at Fuel Medical, says, and that is, there are a whole lot of people out there uh, that have a uh, five hundred or a thousand dollar problem, and historically we've only offered them a four or five thousand dollar solution. And I think that gets at those individuals that are at the uh, bottom of that pyramid that we've talked about, those people with mild to high frequency, uh, moderate hearing loss uh, that historically don't even know that we exist as a profession, uh, often don't use any kind of, of any, any kind of device. Uh, I think that it's probably a different business model, uh, a different practice model that's needed to that 
something that they would value. Uh, historically, what we do, you know, test somebody, uh, recommend fit hearing aids, have them come back three or four times over the course of six months for some follow-up appointments. Um, that clinical model probably doesn't work very effectively for those 60% of the population with um, that, that has a hearing loss, those 60% that are in the mild category just don't find that to be valuable. So, I mean, there's yeah. a lot... I, I, I agree. And I think that this, that that's sort of gets at this whole thought, which is, you know, when, when I think back to sort of the, the genesis of, of the whole OTC act and the sentiment in the industry around it, um, I think it was, uh, very understandably, you know, anytime anybody comes for like your, um, if you ever feel like you're threatened, you know, um, of course, then these things look like threats. Um, and, and so I think initially OTC was sort of positioned as, as if it was going to really, uh, threaten the current, I guess, revenue model and in the overall business, if you will, of, uh, that, that so many of these companies in this industry are s sort of, uh, are based around it. And, and so I think that, you know, when you really start to read through, not only like the data, but also look at, you know, some of the different ways in which there have been surveys. I know Brent Edwards, he's done, um, he had a really interesting market track 10 piece uh, that you sent to me as well. And, um, you know, one of the things that always stands out in my mind that I think is so important is as he found uh, in this study, you know, so I think it was like 3000 adults, that was the end that they were using for this uh, this piece of research, um, they found that, you know, of, of people that have been exposed to a hearing care professional. So if you've bought a pair of hearing aids, um, or you've seen an audiologist or, or a hearing care professional, 88% um, of them indicated that if they were given that option again, now knowing what they know and that experience that they've had, 88% indicated that they would definitely or would likely go and see an audiologist or a hearing care professional as opposed to a like a do-it-yourself over-the-counter solution. And I just find that to be such an important statistic for just a wide variety of different reasons. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this because I think that, you know, that number is it's a little bit of almost of a double-edged sword because on one hand, it's, it's amazing. I think it really sort of is a testament to the value that the professional really provides. But I think that the other side of that is how do you make people aware that this experience exists when we enter into an era where there are just that many more avenues of access to these kinds of solutions um, where it might not involve them. And so it's almost, you're trying to provide a, uh, you know, solicit sort of this, you should go this route, but to your point, it might not really make sense because it's not fitting into the current delivery model. So it seems to be that one of the biggest names of the game right now is going to be a matter of how do you expose more people into that audiological value so that you get more and more of those that fall into this bucket of 88% would want to go that route. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of speaks to the complex nature of hearing loss and trying to figure out what's going to work best for somebody. You know, you think about people that, um, raise their hand and say, I have trouble with my hearing. It usually takes the proverbial seven to 10 years to get there. Uh, usually 
people in that category tend to be to skew a little bit older. They have other uh, health conditions. And so I think they, at some point along the patient journey, they're looking for guidance. I think historically that guidance has always been along all segments of the patient journey from testing to fitting to follow-up. I think really one of the more exciting opportunities because of telecare, uh, because of the ability to maybe buy devices uh, online is a kind of, uh, it allows the patient to kind of pick and choose the segment of the journey where they want to involve a professional. Maybe they want the professional at the beginning to kind of help them navigate the choices. Uh, maybe they want the professional to help them kind of better understand uh, their hearing loss and some of the treatment options. Maybe they need help learning how to get the device in and out of their ear and all those kind of things so they can be a consistent um, hearing aid wearer. So I think there's all kinds of opportunities to kind of uh, deconstruct uh, the patient journey and offer value where a patient can kind of pick and choose along the way where they want to engage the professional. Yeah, I love that um, you, you you said navigate, and uh, that brings to mind when I was speaking with Kim and Jeff. Kim used the analogy of, you know, let the patient be the captain of their own journey. You know, they're going to be the one that's ultimately deciding where they want to go. But the the professional's role is really that of a navigator. It's to steer them and provide them a map as to their options. And I love that analogy because, again, you know, as you mentioned too it seems to me like a part of the solution here, again, if the whole name of the game is exposure, um, it, and, and we know this to be probably a market that's not going to be nearly as time intensive because of the severity, right? So right. if you're not seeing a professional today, you're, you know, you're either, you haven't reached a point to where it's that Dan Qual saying where it's like, okay, it's, it's a $300 problem, not a $3,000 problem. And so you feel as if that's just not the right avenue for you. And so as we, as an industry, I think, start to cater to this entirely new part of the market that is more on this more mild um, or hidden hearing loss end of the market um, or very situational side of the market where it's like, you know, I really struggle in these specific instances. You know, I, I struggle in, these conference meetings that I have at work. So it seems to me that, okay, if you start to kind of put the pieces together here and you say, well, what, what is my role there? Well, clearly what would be beneficial would be for somebody to advise them on their options that exist. And this is where I think it gets really interesting is to figure out, so how do you make that conducive to being able to be sort of able to see a whole lot of people? And that screams, online, telehealth, remote services. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's been, just in the last few months, I've seen a, a, a tremendous number of papers. A lot of them come from um, the UK, South Africa, some leading researchers in those uh, parts of the, of the world that have used online testing. Uh, and they're showing that it's a, it's a tool that engages people in the process. I mean, think about, uh, hearing loss, like a lot of other chronic conditions, is something that obviously nobody wants to have. They try to live with it as long as they can. And the fact that you're uh, raising your hand and saying, I want to come into the clinic, that doesn't happen right away. And a lot of people, if given the option to kind of 
from the comforts of home, investigate their situation, even do some measurement of their situation and in, in, in using a tool that might be vetted and has some validation behind it, I think is a great way to get people engaged in the process without having them to, to go through the uh, kind of the emotional ordeal of uh, making an appointment, getting dragged into the office by a spouse. Uh, so when you think about uh, hearing loss through the lens of a chronic condition, these online tools have a tremendous amount of appeal, I think, to a lot of, especially younger individuals. And when I mean younger, I mean people under the age of like 65 that tend to have a little, have a milder hearing loss. Uh, I'm a big believer in trying to figure out a way to uh, uh, engage them using, you know, an online tool, for example, to test their hearing or to, to disseminate information about the consequences of untreated hearing loss. Uh, so anyway, there's all kinds of opportunities, I think, to kind of rethink the traditional uh, clinical model. Yeah, and I think uh, you're really touching on a few things that are very top of mind for me as well. Okay, so let's stick with online tools. Um, because, okay, so one big element is a screener. I think just even um, having something, you know, sort of, again, in the absence of this all not being something that's administered by your physician, which is its own, uh, a whole nother conversation there. Um, check out for anybody that's listening and interested what Johns Hopkins and specifically Nick Reed uh, are doing around the ACHIEVE trial, which is really trying to combat this. Um, but because of the fact that very few people ever are really given a assessment even, you know, in the sense of like, because again, this is all very, for the most part, very progressive in terms of you lose your hearing progressively bit by bit over time. And therefore it's really hard to even kind of see when it's happening until the point where you're blasting the TV. And, and usually it's like your spouse or your child or whoever you're living with is like, man, you got to go get this thing checked out because you can't hear worth a shit anymore. And so, <laughs> um, you know, so this, this, this seems to me like a really, really good oppor opportunity though, for the industry to really kind of get and rally around. And so I, I do think that this idea of embedding a online hearing screener on every single website in the industry, every hearing care professional's website and having it be a triage thing where, you know, you go on there and that's a really effective way to capture that lead and then say, okay, would you like to schedule a visit and come see us and, and get really kind of like a full um, audiological evaluation and meet with this person? So, um, again, when we're talking about something that seems to be so, um, such a psychological thing, you know, where it's so much of it is, is ego and you don't want to admit that I probably have a problem. And so in the absence of there really being anything that actually gives you sort of an objective sort of like, yeah, you need to come and see me. Um, it seems like we're just going to continue to be in this state of, uh, giving people the option to cop out because there's nothing clinically that suggests that they need to come see you other than the t they're listening to their TV at full blast. And, and those are the kinds of, they, they almost seem trivial, but I think they're so important when we're looking at the broad population and we know there to be just this massive hindrance of adoption because of the fact that, again, there's a uh, about five really major factors that play into this, it seems like. Um, but it ultimately boils down to like, you're giving people just that much more of a reason to not come see you when they don't want to come see you in the first place, it feels like. Yeah. And no, I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the, it, it's just like, in, like I said, 
I don't, I think it's normal human behavior when you have a condition that's kind of slow onset. Uh, it's just easy to ignore it for a while. Uh, there's a model that I often, um, I use this a lot in my courses and I've written about it. Uh, it's called the stages of change model. Uh, it, it's a way to think about uh, a person that has the condition, how they kind of uh, the behaviors associated with it over time. Uh, there's pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, and then action. And uh, pre-contemplation is really that you're uh, the person that has the condition is unaware that it exists, and other people are saying you need to do something about it. Well, usually, uh, you know, there's been a couple of studies that have looked at this. It takes somebody usually, on average, about nine, ten years to get into the action stage. And uh, the problem with that is, uh, and this goes to some of the work that's happening at Johns Hopkins. Um, it's going to, there's a, there's an otologist by the name of Justin Golob at the university, Columbia University Medical uh, School in New York City that looked, has looked at the relationship between subclinical hearing loss, which is basically uh, low normal uh, scores on the audiogram, the relationship between subclinical hearing loss and uh, depressive symptoms and cognitive dysfunction or cognitive uh, uh, decline. And you know, showing that even though they technically have normal hearing, they're starting to see some early cognitive decline, uh, more likely to have some de depressive symptoms. The whole point is uh, we need to figure out a way to intervene um, earlier with people when the loss is milder when they're younger because there's all kinds of benefits. That's what Nick Reed's group is looking at in their ACHIEVE study, I believe. Uh, so. You know, unfortunately, I think we've kind of over time just built, we built a clinical model that doesn't really cater to somebody that uh, has a milder hearing loss that might be younger. And that's the exciting thing about some of the, um, this internet web-based testing, uh, the use of decision aids on a website to help somebody kind of navigate what their options might be. That's why manufacturers are starting to uh, bring uh new products to market that may not be necessarily uh, hearing aids in the conventional sense of the term as far as how they look. Uh, so I think everybody's starting to pay attention to this and they recognize the need for um, earlier intervention, you know, try to grow the, um, to grow the market. Yeah. Uh, well, let's stick on this one for a little bit here because, um, you know, I think that what Signia has done with the active is just such a representation of what's to come. And so just for those that don't know, do you want to talk real quickly about what the active is? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll use your term, uh, Dave. Uh, it's a hybrid device. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, if you map out uh, anything, any kind of device that goes in, around, or near your ear that amplifies sounds, I think you can map them out on a continuum. On one end of the continuum, you have devices that are, I would say, 100% conventional hearing aids, and they have things in them like uh, feedback cancelers and the ability of the two hearing aids to communicate so that you get very effective bilateral beamforming systems for, my, for noise reduction and a few other things that are kind of unique to the hearing aid world. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have devices that uh, amplify sounds that are more like um, consumer earbuds. They might have a low end uh, amplifier built into them. And of course, there's been a number of those on the market that have come out on the market over the last decade or so uh, known as PSAPs, personal sound amplification products. Well, now I would say we have it kind of in the middle of this continuum, these hybrid devices that uh, some of them are more 
uh, skewed more towards hearing aids, some skew more towards uh, consumer earbuds. I believe that the Signia Active product is kind of the first fully featured uh, device that's disguised as a consumer earbud and really sits smack dab in the middle of that continuum. Yeah, I, I, I think this is so fascinating. So I would say that the the reason for low hearing aid adoption is threefold. It, it fits into usually three buckets. There's some nuance to this, but generally speaking, I think it comes down to a combination of the stigma associated with it, the high price point associated with hearing aids historically, and the access in, in terms of getting that. You have to go through see a provider. And for some people, that's a lot harder than for others. Like if you live in a city, you can choose from a variety of different providers. Whereas if you're in a rural part of the country, it might be there might be one person that you can go to that's 40 miles away. And so I think that there are these three things. And what is so exciting right now, in my opinion, is that we're seeing all three of them are being systematically chipped away at. And the stigma one, I think, is maybe the most interesting because what's really happening is there is a major cultural shift that's underway in terms of the behavior of which we use audio devices. And I've had this conversation a bunch before, but I'll rehash it here a little bit, which is AirPods were one of the most important things to happen for the hearing industry in the last five years and really ever. And the reason being is because it has normalized wearing things in and around your ears for extended periods of time. Up until then, you had people that obviously would wear headphones, but because of the plug, that's sort of always, it's sort of limited to the usage to a single session, if you will. Like you would put them on and then you would listen to whatever you wanted to listen to, or you'd take a phone call and then you'd take them off. But with AirPods, I think that that's really when, so roughly 2017, when we started as a society to normalize wearing things in your ears. I mean, you talk to many people when they're talking about their AirPods, they're like, I don't have anything playing right now, but I know I'm going to get a call. I'm going to want to be able to just pull up Twitter or Instagram and have the audio already. I don't have to just continually place it in and out, in and out, in and out. And so you're kind of left with this shift that's taken place that I think is so important where you now have this, because the byproduct of that is if you walk into now that the pandemic starting to ease up in the States, um, go to an airport, go to a train station, go to a busy area and just count the number of different devices that you see in people's ears. Because the first thing you'll notice is, man, just about everybody here has something in their ears. And then the second thing is there's a lot of different form factors that they're wearing. And so why does this have anything to do with what you had just mentioned with Signia Active? Well, the reason that has something to do with it is because when we now start to enter into a world where hearing aids start to look like earbuds, what we're really going to move into is an era where no one's going to know why anyone is wearing the thing in their ear, right? Because I might be wearing my AirPods because I'm a big podcaster. The guy next to me is wearing it because they love music and they're listening to a ton of different music girl next to me, you know, she's got the kind of job where she's constantly taking calls throughout the day. And then the person over there, they're wearing something that looks like Signia Active, and they're actually wearing it for the ambient amplification features. And so I just think that it, it, it's something that will take time, but you cannot undercount and discredit just the sheer importance of this normalization, because 
from a, you know, it, there's arguments to be made of why this might be um, a little bit detrimental from like a societal standpoint, but I don't think that you can make an argument that this is bad from a hearing healthcare standpoint, um, other than maybe it, it might pronounce, you know, hearing loss levels higher if people are just blasting their eardrums. Um, but again, that's a conversation for a different day. I think right. by and large, what this really ultimately equates to is the stigma that's so pervasive around hearing aids you know, when the hearing aids now start to look undistinguishable from all these other things that we're wearing in our ears, it allows for people to operate and treat it and combat their hearing loss. And no one really never knows in the same way that it's hard to tell nowadays if people are wearing glasses because they're fashionable uh, and they're designer glasses or their prescription lenses. And I think that's a really, really positive development as it relates here. And the Signia Active is, is such a good example of why I think we're going to see a lot of stuff that looks like this, where it's going to just be harder and harder to tell what's what. No, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, it's a, it really is a, it, it's a kind of product that's designed for a couple of different underserved markets. One we already kind of talked about, that group of people that are reluctant, maybe they have a, they have an aidable hearing loss, they, an audio, a hearing care professional will look at their, at their test and say, this person is a hearing aid candidate, but they're still in that pre-contemplation phase where they're not even aware that a problem exists, or maybe they're denying it. And maybe a device like this that looks more like a consumer earbud would be something they would find appealing. Uh, then there's another group of people. Uh, I, I use the term subclinical hearing loss. Uh, there's a couple of different studies that say that uh, 12 to 15% of the entire US adult population, I don't know what that number is exactly, but it's a few million people out there uh, have uh, normal audiograms. They're on the low end of normal, but they have uh, self-reported hearing difficulty. I think a device like this would be appealing to them. And then, of course, you just have people out there that are uh, have self-reported hearing difficulty, uh, have an aidable hearing loss on their audiogram, and for whatever reason, haven't embraced hearing aids, and maybe a device like Active would be appealing to them as well. So whatever it is, I mean, the, the, the positive for consumers and professionals alike, I think, is that uh, choice is good. It's good to have more than one uh, or two options available to people. And uh, that's something that we ought to embrace just because we know that uh, last time I checked somewhere, but only 15 to 30% of people with hearing loss were wearing hearing aids. Uh, so it's really imperative for all of us to think of ways to uh, grow the market. So one of the different things uh, that you sent me to was um, a Larry Humes, another Larry Humes study. And, um, you know, so he, he took... Um, basically some research uh, from Franklin and Nick Reed at Johns Hopkins, where they were um, talking about the need for sort of a universal uh, testing um, or like a universal metric for hearing loss. And they were arguing that, you know, it should basically be uh, the results of pure tone audiometry. And uh, in Larry's paper, he basically outlined that, yeah, they agree wholeheartedly, but they think that maybe you should augment it with like a little bit of a self-assessment questionnaire. And so again, going off of this whole idea of, you know, in this uh, world where you will have, you know, the ability to maybe um, provide these kinds of online tools, um, whether it be a hearing screener or even a full-blown online hearing test that has, you know, like a 500, 1000, 2000, 4000 Hertz frequency, um, or you do this in clinic and you give them the results. Um, 
I just think that, uh, and, and then you can add in this element of having the survey data. Again, um, what's exciting to me is that that really chips away at the avenue of access piece to hindrance. Right. Uh, well, and I think this is one of the most interesting things about audiology and hearing care professional work in general. And that is, um, I think in that you mentioned the Nick Reed, Frank Lynn paper, they were advocating for a universal metric around peer, for the, like a peer tone average. And, uh, and that's all well and good. I think that we need something like that, but um, I've used this term now subclinical hearing loss a few times. And that kind of speaks to the crude nature of the peer tone audiogram. It's, it's a tool that's been around for, you know, like a hundred years and uh, for those of for those of you out there that are not well well versed in the audiogram, it's about a the normal range is about 30 dB from minus 10 to 20 to 25 dB. That's a huge range. And if you're on the low end of that range, uh, chances are pretty good. Over the last 10 or 20 years, you've you've migrated from the upper end of normal to the lower end of normal, and you're noticing you're having some communication difficulty. Uh, anyway, that's sort of the the that's framing hearing loss in medical terms, more or less. And of course, uh, there's a number of conditions that need attention from an ENT or otolaryngologist uh, that an audiologist or a hearing care professionals uh, uh, trained to, to recognize and detect. Uh, and there are just to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent, Dave, there are some tools out there using machine learning that automate that process and help um, help you help an individual make a decision, do they have a medical problem with their ear or not? Uh, I think some of, some people you've had on the podcast recently have, have mentioned, uh, it's called the Consumer Ear Disease Risk Assessment, CEDRA, uh, developed by some Mayo Clinic and Northwestern University people uh, that uses machine learning to help a person detect the probability of having a condition that requires medical attention. Um, anyway, so that's the medical side of things. And uh, but what it misses is kind of the functional component uh, because the audiogram is so crude and you're off here on the low end of normal, it's quite possible uh, that you could have day-to-day -day communication struggles. And so in the article that you mentioned, I think it was written by both Larry Humes and uh, Barbara Weinstein. It was published a few months back in J JAMA Otolaryngology. Uh, they were advocating for uh, a metric that measures uh, the functional impact that a hearing loss uh, might have. And uh, Barbara Weinstein, who's at City University of, U of New York back in the early 80s, so this is 40 years ago, uh, was a co-developer of a tool called the Hearing Handicap Inventory, uh, which in its long form is 20 que 25 questions that look at basically the impact uh, hearing loss might have on uh, emotional impact and social impact. And this is a validated tool. There's a screening version that's only 10 questions. There's the HHIE for the elderly. And of course, that's kind of an outdated term. So now it's the hearing handicap inventory for adults, uh, HHIA. And then just in the last couple of years, some researchers at the University of South Carolina updated it and they called it the revised HHI. Anyway, the point is, uh, in the in the Larry Humes, Barbara Weinstein, in this short piece in JAMA, uh, in a longer piece that Larry wrote for Ear and Hearing, basically saying that um, every clinician should be measuring auditory wellness, uh, the functional capability of the individual, 
or the impact on functional ability that the person has uh, because of a hearing loss, they should be measuring that uh, with this H1 version, pick the version you want of this hearing handicap inventory. And uh, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that this is a huge opportunity for our profession to kind of move away from just uh, from the medical model, even though, yes, that's still important, and look more at um, hearing loss as uh, sort of the lens of the chronic care model and how do we help this person get by better and function better day to day. And the, and the tool to use, to use the, the tool that gauges that is this HHI uh, questionnaire, really easy to, and then if I could go one step further, I'll just say that in um, one of uh, Larry's papers, he talks about people that had essentially normal audiograms, but on the HHI uh, questionnaire, they were really struggling. And those people that were struggling that had normal audiograms were fitted with hearing aids and actually had the same or similar measured benefit as people that had uh, mild and moderate hearing loss which again, from the clinician's point of view shows that's a huge opportunity to bring something of value to an underserved group, people with normal hearing on the audiogram, but self-reported hearing difficulties and uh, you know, having devices and tools, interventions available that uh, would be valued by that segment is, would be important. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that this you know, idea of like, you know, you start to put these things in into you assemble them, you know, together, and it's like, um, okay, you have these, you know, online hearing screeners on your website, and then that maybe that graduates into something that's a more sophisticated version of that that's really uh, giving you, you know, an even more uh, robust assessment, and then you combine it with something like this questionnaire again that's administered through your through your website. Um, and I just think that, you know, or, or it's done as, you know, a follow-up from that initial consultation that you have. It just seems like these are all sort of elements to this new world where you're going to be catering to, it's the, the whole notion of, you know, we, you can't just assume that you're going to take a round peg and stick it in a square peg or a square hole. You know, it's like, okay. we've always just assumed that you have, this is the one type of uh, solution that I have for you. And I think that's, what's really exciting is that, you know, again, it goes back to this optionality is communicating that optionality as to, okay, let's first get an idea of who you are and all the different challenges that present themselves to you. And then that's that whole navigator role. And, and that's what, you know, everything that we've been talking about today sort of, I think, ties to this notion of like, by being a navigator, what that implies is that you're going to have to be really knowledgeable about what it is that exists today from a information gathering standpoint and making that really widely available to your patients um, and making it really easy to access too. So again, that screams online to me, but mm -hmm. for others, maybe there's uh, an element of this that you do in the clinic. Um, but then in addition to that, you have all these different kinds of devices that are becoming available. And I think it's understanding that, yes, the business model that you know revolves around these is different in terms of the amount of revenue that you can generate and the amount of profit that you make per device. But at the end of the day, the real reason that people are seeking you out, uh, you know, is, is your expertise and, and you, you know, this idea that they need somebody to help guide them through this because 
what's undeniable is that the market seems to be getting more complex, you know, from a patient standpoint, from the consumer standpoint, there's more and more options. Options are good, but options also can be paralyzing when you're given too much choice. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think that in a world which is increasing in complexity, it, it increases the demand for somebody to help solve that complexity. And that's where the provider, I think, really stands to gain is if they can do so in such a way that is highly conducive and accessible I think that that whole idea is is a really secure, um, sort of future-proof concept, um, and and that's where I think the big questions are going to really present themselves over these next few years is it's not going to really be, is there demand in the market for you? It's a matter of how do you capture that demand and then service that demand in a way that is, uh, you know, it, it's something that I think clinics are going to have to ask themselves, do they want to do this? Because if they do, I think it implies you're going to need to do something to facilitate a whole lot more patient interactions because this likely implies that you're going to just be seeing a lot more people because it will be higher volume, but it will be probably lower dollar per patient, if you will, in terms of revenue. Now, again, going all the way back to the Larry Humes quote that I had at the beginning where he's saying, you know, we don't really see that this is going to impact any specific hearing professional within the existing model. This is an expansion. So again, this is all of this is to say that again, if you look at this from the viewpoint of like, why are hearing aid penetration rates as low as they've been? And it seems to be that we can't crack it. And you start to unwind, okay, if it's really a combination of these major three things, stigma, access, and cost, and we're seeing them sort of systematically be broken down so that it's further enabling and incentivizing people with, it's the Dan Qual thing where it's, you know, the people that have the $300 problem, if you're presenting them with a $300 solution that matches their sort of personal parameters, that's what's happening right now, it feels like. And then the implications of that is just this expanding market. And I think that's where this is all coming down to is like, what does the professional do in this world? And from what I've been able to gather so far, it's very much what Kim Cavett said, which is the navigation piece. That seems to be at the heart of where the value really will ultimately lie because that's where the values always lie. But it's now that you're able to present new solutions that are catering to the people that fit into this more mild end of the market. Right. Well, I, I wanted to maybe go back and explore. You mentioned those three things that kind of yeah. hold, hold people back, price, access, well, I think one of the things around access, which is interesting that um, I'd like to touch on is uh, the average person that uh, is fitted with the pair of hearing aids uh, sees the uh, provider, I think, between on average three or four times over the course of the first year. And uh, that's something that I think um, we have to find a way to, for those that don't want to do that, make that's a lot of time away from their job or waiting in the waiting room uh, for, an, for an, a visit that may only take a few minutes to have their hearing aid adjusted. I think there's opportunities using uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning to allow the patient to take over some control of the hearing aid so they can self-adjust uh, in, a, in a viable way without having to take up uh, precious clinical time uh, that's an in inconvenience for them. Yeah. I mean, I think too, it's uh, a lot of it is going to be probably driven around the apps. You know, I think that's mm -hmm. one of the most exciting things about made for iPhone hearing aids in this uh, just world full of Bluetooth enabled hearing aids is that 
it fostered then the ability to, you know, then for the manufacturer standpoint, we need an app and what can we do with that app? And that app's just going to get built more and more as time goes on. And so right. I think that this is where, again, that's where I'm saying that, um, you know, what, what does the next, uh, to Larry's point, you know, if the next decade is all about sort of this expanding part of the market, the manufacturers are going to be doing a lot to help enable that too, because, you know, you look at it as a current clinic that, you know, fits, call it Signia hearing aids. It's in Signia's best interest then to have the ability for, like you said, if there are three to four follow-up visits and a lot of that visit is more just sort of Q and a information gathering. Are you happy with your experience? Do we need to make any kind of adjustments? Why can't you just do that through something that looks a lot more like a zoom than having somebody come in and spend all that time? Like you said, yeah, and, if the patient wants that, right? Exactly. And, and it's not to say that you have to force them into these new online models. Don't get me wrong. I understand that this is largely, um, a, a patient demographic that's populated by older, quite older uh, adults. And therefore they might not be, they might have not, not have the proclivity or the, any desire to have this done through online things. Mm -hmm. But to your point, um, you know, when we're looking at a lot of what isn't being treated, it's, you know, on a, on an audiogram, it appears you have normal hearing loss, but obviously, you know, that not to be the case. And again, this is where a lot of those people are probably more like situational instances. They probably have some deficit at a certain frequency or something like that. And they really struggle when that particular frequency, whether it's like, I really struggle with my grandchildren because they might have the higher frequency voices and therefore those specific voices are challenging for that person to hear. So a hearing aid might be a great solution for them or something a little bit more watered down might be great too. So that's again, where I think this gets interesting is that, you know, that first initial visit, we really understand as the provider, I think, okay, here is exactly what the challenges are that this person's laid out. And then that information's stored. We now know that exists. And so when we go to have that follow-up, I just think that all of this really to me is a matter of how do you sort of like, okay, if, if a lot of what the current model offers isn't appealing to sort of this expansion of the market, then that presents the question of like, well, what would it, what would need to be done in order to do that? Because it seems to me that if you have 88% of people that have experienced the professional's service as saying that they would opt to experience that again and, and go through the professional if presented that or a do-it-yourself option. So there's a lot of value there, but then you got to make it so that that value more or less is just much more conducive. And that's why I just think that um, a combination of, of like online video conferencing, um, online tools to gather information, really allowing people to access your stuff and your services on their own time. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, and I think that's you're, you're starting to see that with different groups around the world, actually, that have this blended model where they have a, a person can kind of pick and choose. Do they want to see the provider in person or do they want to see them uh, remotely? And uh, that blended model seems to really drive uh, high outcomes, which is good. Um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me that's a little bit of a dilemma as a clinician is the use of these, I'll, I'll just call them self-adjusting hearing aids. Um, and you know, if I was, if I'm a, if 
as a clinician, I would be a little bit, I would wonder, um, is a machine learning algorithm in a hearing aid that can adjust on kind of with just a little bit of uh, coaching from a provider, is that going to take away what I do in the clinic when somebody needs an adjustment? So um, as you know, Dave, a lot of people come in, they're fitted with hearing aids and uh, sometime after could be a year or longer. Um, typically it's the first few months, first few weeks, they need some adjustments. I don't hear very well in background noise. Can you adjust my hearing aid? Well, they make an appointment with their provider, they come in and the provider using their best clinical judgment, their experience, uh, how to navigate that manufacturer's fitting software, they make the adjustment for the patient. Uh, the alternative to that is to use a machine learning algorithm. In the Signia world, we call this Signia Assistant. And basically, it's taking the profile using uh, anonymized data from thousands of similar fittings from around the world, people that had the similar audiogram, similar uh, parameters fit into their hearing aids. And it's using all of that data that it's collected and allowing the patient through an app interface uh, to make adjustments based on thousands of data points rather than on, let's just say, the single data point of an experienced clinician. Um, to me, that's kind of a dilemma for the profession or for the professional. Uh, do I allow the patient to make this adjustment um, or do I want the patient to come in? It, you know, is it a con do I want to make it easier for my patient or do I want to do I want to maintain control? So those are kind of some of the real uh, challenges that I think we have to kind of sort out as a profession over the next few years. And that's a big, uh, I, I think, a, probably one of the more um, compelling arguments as to why um, I think that the professional, they need to really think through this because uh, if, if the whole basis of your value is call it adjustments um, and, and that progressively can be handled like you said, because of the fact that you have 10,000 different inputs that are uh, the determination of, of the way in which that algorithm is refined, um, then I think that that needs to be seriously considered as to, is that viable if my business is built around this? Um, right. the, the, so, so there's definitely, I think, you know, ways to look at this and, and question the longevity of the the professional from that particular aspect. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the, the person that definitely doesn't suffer is going to be the patient. And I think that, you know, if, if it means that we move into a world where these things are uh, able to sort of on the fly, constantly reprogram themselves and get better uh, in terms of catering to your specific hearing profile, um, I think that's actually a positive. And I don't think that, you know, we should uh, be opposed to that because it might mean that there's less instances in which your services will be required. Because I think what that implies is there's just that many more people that are treating their hearing loss. And so then that begs the question, like, what is the role of the professional? And this is something I've asked a number of people on this. And, you know, again, I'll go back to what Kim Cavett said. I think she pretty much nailed it. It's all about audiology. You know, it's all about um, this uh, and, and just the, um, you know, understanding that the value really is in your um, culmination of, of everything that you know, and the ability to distill that down effectively for people as an expert. And so I think that there's ways in which maybe the, the scope of service gets expanded, mm -hmm. um, where it's more, you know, because 
it's something where so long as it is right now, there's uh, no, there's no cure in sight. So it's something that you'll have to live with. So there's a lot of different rehabilitation things, um, lots of different coping sort of uh, coaching uh, strategies that can be communicated. So, but the, the fact of the matter that as you're bringing up is, you know, the, these are the things that I think we as an industry really need to think about as, uh, and if I were a practicing audiologist or just a professional in general, I would be I would be slightly worried about that, about like, you know, is what, what happens in, you know, five years, call it when uh, that part of my job sort of becomes obsolete by technology, but that's something that we're facing writ large at the world right now is like this whole question of like, what, what will life look like in a world that's very much uh, operated by AI and uh, the questions yet to be seen, but I don't think that there's much of a scenario where it's like as if all of the expertise that is derived from this profession goes away. I think it just shifts around in different ways. That's yeah, hundred percent agree. Yeah, I think there's always going to be a place for humanistic communication where yeah. you help a per- where you're helping somebody with um, boosting their skills and knowledge, capabilities, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's not going to ever go out of style, especially with the, the much of the demographic that we that we work with. So as we kind of come to the close here, um, this has been a great conversation. I always love just uh, thinking through all this with lots of smart, intelligent people around the industry. So what, what does the next, uh, you know, few years look like in your opinion, let's just say that call it um, early 2022 OTC really goes into, into effect. Um, You know, we continue to see more momentum um, from this, uh, you know, from the different, both the legacy manufacturers, but also maybe some new players that cater to this and this idea of an expanding market. Where is, um, what, what are some of the things, I guess, that you're going to be keeping an eye on and that like are the most exciting things uh, that you think are kind of on the horizon or, or what you're hoping comes about over the next few years? Well, that's a lot to chew on. Yeah, it's babe. pretty loaded. I <laughs> no, love to okay. ask the, the most difficult question at the end. <laughs> well, there's a, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I, okay. think, number, I think number one, um, I would pay real close attention to the, uh, the legislation, uh, the possibility of Medicare being expanded to age 60 and allowing for hearing aid coverage. Uh, you know, talk about a volume business. Uh, if Medicare paid for hearing aids, uh, that would really change the dynamic in a hurry. Um, probably would need more. Um, you need to uh, have audiology assistance to offload some of the more routine things uh, when you're working with a patient. Uh, probably would need more of that blended model where you're taking some of the visits um, through into the into the virtual world. Um, with respect to innovations in the hearing aid world, I, I think. I, I always say that um, hearing aids have been incrementally improving since the late 90s when digital became a reality. And those innovations usually are involving three different buckets. There's uh, core signal processing, which is really around having the hearing aid uh, incrementally get better at, um, at amplifying in challenging situations. Uh, you know, we've seen bilateral beam forming. We've seen these really interesting things around uh, split processing where you can take some of the sounds that the hearing aid thinks are speech and amplify them in a completely different way than other sounds that the hearing aid um, is trained to think is uh, background noise. So I think signal classification systems inside of a hearing aid 
Um, a lot of people call them artificial intelligence. They've been around and here, they've been in hearing aids for many years. Uh, they're going to become even more sophisticated over the next five to 10 years. Um, you're going to see that innovation. I, I think when it comes to wireless uh, uh, connectivity, uh, you're going to continue to see that evolve and become easier for people to use. Um, and then the third bucket in innovations inside of hearing aids, I'll just call it personalization, the ability to self-adjust and maybe even self-fit your hearing aid. Uh, to me, that's where that Bose product um, that you mentioned early on here is really interesting because it's a um, validated, a, a pretty uh, new validated self-fitting approach that doesn't require an audiogram. Uh, you know, not to get too geeky here, but we've been fitting hearing aids uh, using the prescriptive method, which is developed in Australia and in Canada, two separate similar methods called the NAL and the DSL back in the 70s and 80s that required an audiogram as kind of the starting point uh, thresholds. Well, with this Bose algorithm, you don't have to have a hearing test done to arrive at a uh, at a very similar uh, outcome, uh, according to at least one study that they've done. So I think you'll see more and more around self-adjustment and self-fitting, self which at the core is really uh, machine learning and neural networks. Um, again, been in hearing aids for a while, but they just get more and more sophisticated, more and more user-friendly. So I guess kind of top of mind, uh, we can expect, uh, I think even more uh, faster incremental improvements around how hearing aids perform and what they it. look like. Yeah. So, uh, I love it. yeah, it's a, it's an exciting time. And plus you have all these new, I, I think it's great to, uh, to see some of these new companies try to come into the fold, uh, as long as they bring a high quality device to market, um, that's good for the consumer. And I think competition is good for the industry. It helps you, it, it forces you to kind of raise your level of play. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with all that. I, um, as you were kind of breaking out some of those different sort of components of innovation, um, there's a article that I read. Uh, it's kind of old, actually. I think it's like eight or 10 years old, but it was from Chris Anderson. He is the CEO of 3D Robotics, and uh, he's just a really, really elegant writer. I've, I've like, if there's a few things he's written that have just really stood out in my mind. See the but, guy that wrote The Long Tail? He wrote the long tail. Yes, yeah, he yeah. did the long tail. And he also, yes, a long tail is a very good one. Anybody that's listening, that's never read that, go read that. And also Google the peace dividends of the smartphone war, because it really is probably the best explanation as to sort of like what we're now seeing with consumer technology, which is when you have a race between Apple and its competitors to, you know, the handset war of, of arming our global population at this point, you know, I think it's like, I can't even remember the amount of smartphone proliferation. It's gigantic, yeah, huge. you know? So when you have billions of smartphones out there, what you also have are, you know, uh, that also means that there were billions of little radios and cameras and all the little antennas and radios. And, you know, so every little thing that goes into a hearing, uh, into a, a smartphone, it also goes into drones. It goes into hearing aids, right? It goes into these consumer yes. audio devices. And so we now live in an age where there's just so much innovation happening um, and sort of uh, the downstream effects of that supply chain and all the little components that make it up. 
up and hearing aids are a perfect example of like, we're going to continue to see so much innovation from the components within the devices so that it's capable of supporting multiple Bluetooth protocols and um, capable of, you know, doing crazy things with the signal processing. Um, and, and so all of that is to say that like in the next three to five years, we're due for so much more innovation, uh, largely derived from what's happening with consumer technology at scale. And I think that's just a really fascinating thing. Again, is it's easy when you're um, operating in this industry to just sort of fixate on like what's going on in it, but you really need to kind of take a step back and realize that we're we're really this um, really small little subset of a much, much bigger consumer technology space because we're a medical device industry, but we're also a consumer technology. So it's a very interesting sort of yep. line that this industry straddles yeah. and it, it gets to benefit in unique ways on sort of both yeah. sides of the fence. Well, as long as somebody can bring to market a, a product that uh, can uh, lower the signal to or improve the signal to noise ratio at, at an affordable price point, um, make it an easy to use, uh, that would be uh, something that we would all benefit from that we don't really have yet. Uh, we have hearing aids that uh, have great directional microphones in them and noise reduction, uh, but something that maybe doesn't amplify sound very much, but it improves the signal to noise ratio and does it in an easy way would be uh, something I'd like to see um, come to market. Well, my gut tells me that's probably going to be something that's a very AI oriented product that mm -hmm. you know, something that is, you're right, it, it's taking a different approach to it where what it's really maybe going to do is it's going to identify the sources of background sound and allow you to really control your audio acoustic environment so that you're really able to mute sounds and, and, and amplify other sounds. And, and uh, basically I think of it almost like um, it's creates a number of different files for you that you can then, you know, tweak and you're almost mixing your environment in real time. I, I think that's probably coming because um, wow. it's, seems like the, the pieces are there. So maybe you'll have it, have it on the Oak tree website. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, but we'll, by the way, you guys do a great job with that. Uh, is it still on your website with the, uh, you, you uh, evaluate yeah, different products? Yep. Yep. That yeah, was something that uh, Dr. Bankitis here did. So yeah, that's um, really a helpful tool. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, you know, really, if, if we're going to be uh, getting real here, the whole point of this podcast was to sort of serve a similar effect, which is everybody's really, really, really busy. And I, it's hard enough to even stay on top of all the news that really pertains to the industry, let alone a lot of this, like what's going on in the tech space that's so impactful to every single industry. So this is just my attempt to kind of be like, okay, well, it, here, just take an hour, listen to this, and it will help to educate you a little bit, which is a lot of like what we do here at Oak Tree is just to yeah. understand and say, you all are very busy medical professionals. How can we, how can we support you in any way, whether it be yeah. through our business or it be through just like supporting people with, uh, with information. So yeah. 
anyway, Brian, this has been a fantastic <laughs> conversation. Always a lot of fun yeah. to have you uh, on and, and just get your thoughts on, on the way that this whole industry is taking shape, because I think it's um, one thing is for certain, it, it seems to just uh, the momentum is just increasing. Um, change is happening quicker and quicker. And so I, it feels like more and more urgent almost to, to kind of get your head around this and figure out, okay, what's coming next and how do I best prepare myself for it? Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Dave. It's uh, a lot, a lot to uh, kind of go through in an hour. Maybe next time we can talk about the Cardinals. <laughs> no, not right now. Maybe in 2022 when we uh, solve a lot of our deficiencies right now. I know I was, I came out hot at the beginning of the season. I was all about talking baseball and now we're in fourth place. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know if I need to be talking as much baseball on the podcast, <laughs> especially with the Brewers fan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I know it's a long season, so you have to temper your expectations. That's true. Well, and I will say I'd be more than happy with the Brewers winning the NL central as long as it's not the Cubs. <laughs> Shout out to any of the Cubs you. fans listening yeah. right now. I do well, like uh, you as a Cardinals fan. I hope Kim, I hope Kim isn't listening. <laughs> I know she's, uh, she's just blocked me on Twitter. Uh, awesome, Brian. Well, thank you right, so well, much. Yeah, thanks and thanks for everybody. Yeah. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Right. Talk to you later, Dave. Bye. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.